you all look semi-awake. It's been a nice hot day. You realize I'm going to have to yell at you tonight? I'm serving you by yelling at you, you understand. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 4, shall we? It's been a while since we were in Galatians. Uh, thank you to David for the series on Psalm 119. And uh, Ian for leading us in our uh, message a few weeks ago at Church of Prayer. Uh, tonight we're in Galatians 4, uh, picking up from verse 1. And uh, before we read that together, let's pray. Our Father, again, we thank you so much for your words. Uh, how could we hope to know you had you not revealed yourself to us and been gracious enough to communicate these words of truth, these words of love, these words of grace that, in a sense, undo us in our sinfulness and then build us up in Christ. Do that tonight again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Galatians 4, reading from verse 1. In fact, let me read from verse 26 of chapter 3, just to give us a little bit of context. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather, are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and, and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Russell Moore uh, is the Dean of Theology at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and he's written this great book uh, on adoption called Adopted for Life. And he tells a story of his experience with his wife Maria of adopting two boys from an orphanage uh, in Russia. And he says this, when Maria and I first walked into the orphanage and were led to the boys uh, that the Russian courts had picked for us to adopt, we almost vomited in reaction to the stench and the squalor of the place. The boys, Maxim and Sergei, were in cribs in a dark room. 
Leaving them at the end of each day was painful, but leaving them that final day before going home to wait for paperwork to be concluded was the hardest thing either of us have ever done. Walking out of the room to prepare for the plane ride home, Maria and I could hear Maxim calling out for us and falling in his crib, convulsing in tears. I turned round, walked back to their room just for a minute, placing my hand on both of their heads, and despite knowing that they couldn't understand a word of English, I said, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. I don't think I consciously intended to cite Jesus' words to his disciples from John 14. It just seemed like the only thing worth saying at the time. Muir continues, When Maria and I long, at long last received the call that the legal process was over, we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons to find that the transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than we had supposed. We walked out of that orphanage, for example, on the first day into the sunlight to the terror of the two boys. They had never really seen the sun. They'd certainly never felt the wind, never heard the sound of a car door slamming or the sensation of being carried along at pace along a Russian road. I noticed at one point in the car that they were shaking and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. Moore says, I whispered to Sergei, now Timothy, that place is a pit. If only you knew what was waiting for you. A home with a mummy and a daddy who love you. Grandparents, playmates, McDonald happy meals. All they knew, though, was the orphanage. It was squalid. They were confined to cribs, but they had no other reference point. For them, it was home. There are a few pictures which form for us something of an illustration of the gospel in Galatians, I think, as even that little story. Galatians, who had been those that, like, those of us who are followers of Jesus here tonight have been adopted by God into his family from the squalor of sin and darkness into the kind of life where we have a father who loves us, cares for us, provides for our every need. But we too can experience something of the Galatian problem. The Christians here who in Galatia who have believed the gospel, repented of their sin, put their faith in Christ, and as we've seen already in this series, have received the Holy Spirit, are now believing the lies of false teachers who say that if you've only got Jesus, then you've only got half a gospel. To them it was Jesus plus observance of the law, seasons, days, observance of circumcision rites, and so on. Jesus plus observance of the law is what made you right with God, according to these false teachers. But to Paul, these true believers who had experienced what it was to be truly converted, adopted into the family of God, where as they were believing with their, the, the ears of their infancy and in the faith, were like those little hands reaching back for the orphanage, reaching back for the squalor and the sin, uh, the stench. 
And so in chapter 1, Paul has taught the gospel. He's told them that this gospel of his wasn't made up by men. He received it as a revelation from God. It's got its origin with him. In chapter 2, he's insisted, a man is not justified by doing stuff, by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, by believing in him and trusting in his death on the cross as a payment for that sin. And then in chapter 3, Paul has shown how this law is being abused by false teachers, saying that you're not meant to rely on it to make you right with God. It doesn't impart the new life that we're talking about here, but it does serve, as God intended it, to show us the squalor of our human condition and our need for freedom, our need for rescue, and our need for adoption. And I think this is the subject of the first 11 verses of chapter 4. And quite simply, this is where we're going with this. Uh, what we were, slaves. What we are now, second point, sons. Third thing, what we do sometimes, reach back for the chain. So if I was summing this up in one sentence, and I'm conscious you may fall asleep in the heat, here it is. Remember this, you wake. Once you were slaves, now you are sons through faith in Christ, watch that you do not enslave yourself again. Once you were sons, now you're slaves, watch that you do not enslave yourself again. What? Did I say it wrong? Okay, I didn't even have a sleep this afternoon and that's the way it's coming. Once you were slaves, good, well done. You are listening. <laughs> now you are sons, watch that you don't enslave yourselves again. Did I get it right that time? Good, thank you. So the first thing, what we were, yeah, good, it's on there, I can see that. <laughs> now, now, you know when Peter, uh, in one of his letters, refers to Paul's writings that are quite hard to understand, I think he was reading Galatians 4, 1 to 3, this illustration is not the easiest to get a hold on. The commentators have various things that they suggest as to well, the air and the representation of the law and da, 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 da. So here's, I'm going to give it a bash, okay, see, here we go. Uh, what I think Paul is saying in summary in verses 1 to 3 as he introduces this, this illustration of a child who is also an heir to an estate who has like a guardian or a trustee over him is this. There is the prospect of an incredible inheritance. But until people see the law as a means and not an end to being made right with God, we'll never see it. Okay? And imagine for a second then, just to, to bring this up to 21st century, a boy of eight years old walking around this great estate. And he's the heir of it, okay? His father owns it. He can walk around the grounds of this estate knowing that everything that he sees, you know, the, the, the mansion house, if you like, or, you know, the stream at the bottom, the, the, the tennis courts, whatever. It's his by promise, but not by experience. It's not actually his yet, okay? Why? Because he's still a child. He has not yet reached that point appointed by the father to receive the inheritance. And I think this is how the Apostle Paul is depicting these false teachers, that they haven't quite grasped the whole point of the law. The whole point of the law being a guardian over us to teach us and nudge us and encourage us forward to recognizing we have a need for Jesus, okay? And they haven't grasped this point of the law. They haven't grasped the Father's goal in providing the law or understood the Father's values. So Paul depicts unbelieving Israel then as children 
And as Paul says in verse 1, as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. So he might have a promise, but he just keeps on living like a child. He is subject then, verse 2, to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So these guys are claiming, these false teachers are claiming that, that they are the ones who have the right gospel. The right good news that can make a person right with God. But they don't. They think they've got a PhD in how to be right with God, but they don't even know their A to Z, according to Paul. And that's what he's suggesting in verse 3. As children, these guys and all who follow after these false teachers are like children. In fact, like children who are enslaved under, what Paul says, the basic principles of this world. Essentially, it would take me a whole sermon to explain the, the debate behind that phrase in itself, but I think we can camp on the fact, uh, quite worthily, that it refers to demonic powers. And feel the force of that. Uh, one of the reasons why we say that is because later on in verse uh, 9, Paul says, how is it you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? In other words, these Gentile Galatians, they have turned from idols, worshipping all sorts of other gods. And of course, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that behind those gods, though they are nothing, are demons. He is saying, he uses the same word there in verse 9 that he does, say, that he does in verse 3. So that those who abuse the law and mishandle it, that fundamentally behind it is Satan. What? Is Paul saying that the devil is actually behind the law of God in some sense? Well, no. Galatians 3.19 has already told us that the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. In other words, it's from God. But instead, I think Paul is informing us that the evil one has taken this thing, this guardian, which was meant to be a good thing, and twisted it for his own evil purpose. As is often his pattern. Uh, John Stott is really helpful whenever you're confused about something. Um, he, he tells us this. Just as a child's guardian can ill-treat and even tyrannize him in ways that the father never intended, so the devil has exploited God's good law in order to tyrannize men in ways that God never intended. He says, God intended the law to reveal sin and drive men to Christ. But the devil uses it to reveal sin and drive men to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as a final step towards his condemnation. And though God meant the law as a stepping stone to liberty, to freedom, Satan uses it as a stumbling block to slavery and bondage. This slave-like experience is our experience, you know. Even though we are not Jews by birth, even though we are not born into that nation, we are by our very nature slaves of sin. Slaves because we can't stop doing it. And slaves because we are so captivated by it. And the problem is that in relation to making ourselves right with God, we think we can actually do it. We think we can actually attain some kind of standard where we make ourselves all prim and proper for God and then he'll accept us. But we can't. Because the problem is that even all of our best efforts fall short of his glorious standard. And as a result, even of that, all we know is guilt and shame and 
condemnation. And in response to that, either we just anesthetize ourselves to the call of our conscience, if you like sticking our spiritual fingers in our ears, just not listening anymore, or we actually dupe ourselves into thinking, well, just for us, maybe just for us, if God is so loving, he might just lower the standard for us so that we might receive this inheritance. The problem is, he won't. That would be to compromise his perfections, his justice. It would be very ungodlike of God to do that. Well, you might think then, even if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, what hope is there then? Doesn't sound like a very good God to me. Why can't he lower his standard? Well, you need to see tonight, and I hope you keep listening, that God has done something even more significant than lowering the standard in order to make sure that people could be made right with him. And this is what we see in verses 4 to 7. This is what we become through faith in Jesus Christ, sons. You see, God's purpose was to offer us the hope of redemption. A redemption that not only frees us from our slavery to sin, but makes us sons of his by his adopting love. It's phenomenal. God's purpose was to rescue his people from slavery, not just to make them free, but to to take them into his family. How did he do that? By sending his one and only son. Did you see that in verse 4? When the time had fully come, God sent his son. So according to God's perfect plan, despite the squalor and the condition of our sinful life, God came in person to pay the price for our redemption. That Jesus Christ was sent into the world by the Father, and he was, as verse 4 continues, born of a woman. We've already seen of his divinity, he's God's son. He was born of a woman, points to his humanity. Very important. He is the God-man, fully God, fully man. Born under law, Paul says. In other words, born into a Jewish family, had a Jewish mother in a Jewish nation, subject to Jewish law. And throughout this life, he kept this law that we've been talking about in Galatians perfectly succeeded where everyone else had failed he was not tyrannized by evil in any sense but walked in perfect obedience for what purpose verse 4 continues to redeem to redeem those under law in other words to break the chains of those who are enslaved by sin to break the chains and lift out if you like of that sinful crib Those of us who could never climb out by our own efforts. I I don't know what it was like for guys like William Wilberforce and Newton in 1833 to see the Abolition of Slavery Act passed in Parliament and see the emancipation of slaves. I don't know what it's like today for government authorities to smash down the doors of those who traffic sex slaves chained up and drugged up for the pleasure of filthy men. But I think that you can imagine something of what it's like for someone to be freed from that kind of tyranny. Even a glimpse of it. For someone to come to you when you are enslaved and in such squalor and difficult condition, for someone to come and say to you, this tyranny is over, you're free. You're free. 
Would that sound good to you? God does that for us. While we were slaves to sin. And actually does more than that. It doesn't just set us free. He adopts us as his own. That we might receive some rights. Half rights. What does it say? Full rights. Full rights. As children of God. He doesn't just set us free. He adopts us, ever, uh, adopts us as his own. That we might receive full right as sons. I think. I have to say personally speaking. I think adoption is one of the most treasured truths I know. I mean for me. To be right with God. The judge. Who could rightfully pour out his wrath on me. Is a great thing. But to be loved by God as Father is for me something greater still. Maybe it's because of my own experience. I've come from a background where I actually don't have a good lasting memory of my dad. The one lasting memory I had of my father that was a real good one for me was that, oh, I remember those times when he used to take me out for a game of pool. But then, as I grew older, I recognized that the reason why he took me out for a game of pool was so that he could go to the pub. Because he's an alcoholic, you see. Who loved a bottle more than his family, essentially. And when I first became a Christian, I struggled with this in some sense. How can I associate with God the Father? So I would use every other name, but I'm happy to consider God as the righteous one, the king, Lord of lords, all of these things. But Father, and then I remember the first time I ever sang, uh, Be Thou My Vision. Be Thou My Wisdom, and Thou My True Word. I ever with Thee and thou with me, Lord, thou my great Father, and I thy true Son. Thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. I didn't deserve any of that. I mean, for God just to say, Liam, you're free. I'm not going to count your sins against you. That would have been enough for me. But for him to say, you're mine. Everything, the inheritance of the new heavens and new earth is yours. Eternal joy, pleasures at my right hand, is yours. Look forward to it. And I will never tyrannize you. And I will never crush you. That's who God is as Father. That's what we should be reminded of every time we pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's incredible what God gives us. Even the picture of 
God's grace and kindness with David and Mephibosheth that we read from in our Old Testament reading earlier. Mephibosheth didn't deserve anything that David gave to him. Actually, because he still had uh, the, the former king Saul's blood coursing through his veins, David should have chopped his head off. But he didn't. They should have been mortal enemies, but David adopted Mephibosheth into his family. 2 Samuel 9, 11. I'm blown away. Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. If that's not a picture of adoption, I don't know what is. If that's not a picture of grace, I don't know what is. But then to hear that he goes on to give him a royal inheritance and show him, a family, show him fatherly care. Please see God the Father in that. It's incredible. Adopted as sons. And to confirm this for us, we have the Holy Spirit. So the, the Son of God is sent for our redemption, to free us, to buy us out of that slavery. And the Spirit is then sent for our confirmation. And of course, the Holy Spirit is a sign and pledge of our adoption. By His presence in our hearts, we can be sure that God really is our Heavenly Father. Verse 6, because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Similar to Romans 8, 15, isn't it? If you're familiar with it, let me read it to you. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that what we are that we are God's children. You see, the Spirit's presence in us is what confirms for us that we truly are children of God, providing for us a real sense of intimacy as we read his word, a word that is not just black print on a white page, but a word that is living and active, that the Spirit enlivens to our eyes and fuels our worship by applying it to our hearts. Incredible. God sent his son to redeem us so that we might have this status of sonship, but he sent his spirit into our hearts that we might have the very experience of it. And part of that experience involves the spirit giving us this desire to do what is right, to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, to live a life that pleases God, and he being the one who empowers us in every step. It's not by our own efforts. It's all by his grace. So that we can read in verse 7, you are no longer a slave but a son. And since you're a son, God has also made you an heir. I actually can't figure out what this looks like. I, I, I just can't fathom it. Uh, Philip Ryken said, we will inherit nearly everything that Christ inherited. Uh, he's our elder brother, as it were, and we are to share in his inheritance that we will inherit God's estate with all its joy and delight. We will inherit new resurrection bodies in all their glory, free from pain, suffering and tears. After all, we are children of God and when Christ appears, we shall be what? Like him. As what? He is. It is for this reason that Paul speaks 
in a strong way in verses 8 to 11. Because these guys who were once slaves, now sons, are believing the lies of the false teachers, believing the false teaching itself in relation to religious observance of certain days and so on. And in a sense, they're like those little hands again, reaching back for the orphanage. They're reaching back for slavery, for squalor, for those things. And we have a tendency to do the same. Paul's plea is quite simple. Remember what you were. Formerly, he says, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. Did you know that? Did you know that you were enslaved to those things that are not gods? Though you worship them like gods, like money and materialism and sex and the pursuit of power, even education, sometimes even family can become an idol for you. Idols come in all shapes and sizes and our hearts just keep churning them out one after the other. Well, these are the things that we spend our time on. These are the things that we spend our money on. In other words, these are the things that we make sacrifices for and to at times. We're enslaved by these things. If these things are removed, we get cross. If these things are threatened, we defend. It's often a good indication of the things that are captivating our hearts in the place of God who is rightly to be worshipped and praised But that's like enslavement. It's like those kids living in that way. It's like those kids in that orphanage. You don't know of any better. Maybe you're here today, you're not a Christian. You haven't quite grasped what this, this Christian message is all about. We think, we think, I was the same as you, uh, thinking as an 18-year-old, wow, this, this pursuit of money, sex, power, highs, all those kind of things. This, this is what it's all about. I was living the life. Nothing, no, I would not exchange a million of the greatest highs any drug could ever give me for the life I have with Jesus Christ and the prospect of what lies ahead when this mobile home of mine is gone. We're enslaved to things that we don't need to be enslaved to. Jesus Christ is better and better by far. And my encouragement for you is to keep pursuing this. Keep reading the Bible. Keep talking to the person who brought you. And keep thinking this through. Ask the questions. There's no silly questions. We're still asking questions. But we know the basic truths of the gospel. We know what it is to be made right with God. And that's the biggest issue. He is the one that we are to please. He's the one we are to follow. And we can follow him by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, now that you know God, or rather are known by God. That's not intellectual talk, by the way. Uh, that, <laughs> that God knows you is to say that God has set his affection on you and has adopted you. Paul continues, how is it then that you are turning back from those weak and miserable principles? That could be elementary principles again. And the senselessness of this is plain to see. For those of you who truly are Christians, do you find yourself hankering after the old life, the old you? It doesn't matter if you're a brand new Christian or whether you've been a Christian for many years. Are there things about your old pre-converted life that you 
you quietly yearn for and would quite like to see reintroduced into your life a bit more often. Maybe it's that besetting sin, if you like, that you feel that you just can't shake. Do you realize the ludicrousy of putting yourself back in the chains? I think that's what Paul's pointing out to us. And I don't think we, ought, we remind ourselves of this often enough. We would be turning back. In other words, we are being reconverted to weak elementary principles. Again, saying quite confidently that behind that is Satan and his evil ones. We all do it. Maybe we hanker back for that. Or maybe, maybe we adopt new things. Maybe we take on this religious formalism, something of the Galatian problem that we've seen already. We add laws and rules and regulations that actually aren't the gospel. They're not, even, they're not able to save us, yet we do them not out of a desire just to worship God and, and walk in obedience to him, but we do it because we are presenting something of a CV before God is to say, ha, look at my achievements. Strengths, I do this, I do this, I do this. Weaknesses, None. Do not be deceived. Self-deception is so easy. Even adding to the gospel, thinking that you can do these things and so gain favor with God. So in other words, relying on the law for you to be made right with God is like putting yourself back in chains. And Paul warns against the senselessness of it. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Can you imagine those kids wanting to go back into those cribs? Or the sex slaves wanting to go back into those rooms? Surely not. You're observing special days and months and seasons and years, Paul says. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Paul's aim, quite simply, is to awaken the Galatians from their foolishness and call them back to the true gospel. Brothers and sisters, in closing... How do we live the Christian life? Well, by remembering what we've been saved from, surely. Isn't this the reason why we celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly? Isn't this why, in the wisdom of God, he gave something that is before us tangibly in bread and wine regularly that we might be reminded, oh yeah, that's what I was. And before you can feel crushed and condemned, we remember again with these elements in our hands, bread and wine, body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, that, that's what he's done for me. We should remember what we were and remember what we are now. Slaves, sons, and remember what brought us to that place. Remember what made that transition for us from slaves to sons God sent his son. Have you believed in him? Are you dispensing with him and trying to seek to live a life that will please God? Don't. Follow him. Let Paul's warning speak over you. Because Paul, Paul's aim is to awaken the Galatians from their foolishness and call them to turn back to the true gospel. Once you were slaves... Now you are sons. Watch that you don't enslave yourself again. And a final appeal to those of you who are here tonight 
who are not Christians. You need to understand you don't receive this gift of sonship just by being born, but by being born again. And adoption is not some kind of universal status that everyone has automatically, but it's a supernatural gift that's received by faith in Jesus Christ. And of him we read in John's gospel, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Believe in his name. Trust in his finished work on the cross. And be welcomed into the family. Let's pray together. Lord, by your good 